Sonic States. What's on? So, um, hello everybody. Welcome to Sonic Talk number 23. Uh, we're recording today and it's Wednesday, 22nd of November. Uh, I'd like to welcome once again Richard Evans. Hello. Hi, Richard. Hello, how are you doing? I've also got Mark Tinley, uh, sound artist extraordinaire. How are you doing, Mark? Hello there. And uh, Dave well. Spears is back with us again. Uh, I understand, Dave, you've been out doing um, doing things that have to be done. Uh, yes. Sounds and more sounds. But I did get out to a gig this week. Oh, really? How was that? And what uh, was excellent. it? Excellent. Um, Blue Nile. No. I thought they'd split up. Excellent. Yeah. No, well, it's not really the Blue Nile, but it's some. It's two of them. The singer and um, Robert Bell. This they, guy I know. They played at Bristol recently, and they were they'd had all their uh, backing tracks on Logic on, on Logic on two new power books. They didn't get through one song the whole night without the without Logic stopping. Oh no! <laughs> it was the worst gig. Poor guy, Paul Buchanan oh, on stage, no. just going. I just just apologising to the audience so much, and literally. Not one song without the sequencer stopping and them having to try starting in the ge- again. And in the end, he sang four songs acoustically and sent the audience home. How does that happen? Surely they would have got over that in the production rehearsals. <laughs> it turned out that what it was. <laughs> well, you know that thing that uh, Apple do. I think there's some kind of sense movement sensor now. Whereas if you can kind of wave your hand at the computer and things stop. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, there uh, is. You can switch that off, though. There is a way of doing maybe it. Maybe a good idea. The they didn't know that. So, so <laughs> that was the problem. Every time the keyboard player moved, it stopped. Ouch, ouch. I've got a little nifty little gizmo that you can download that um, turns it into a lightsaber sound. So whenever you whack your computer around, it makes that Star Wars lightsaber noise. Fantastic. <laughs> like that. I saw another one whereby um, you could sort of tap the side of it and what it would do was sort of move your virtual desktop because you, you know that on, on uh, Linux and, and Unix systems you can have virtual, lots of virtual desktops. I don't know if you've ever done that thing with the Mac where you do multiple logins and you log in somebody else at the same time and it does this sort of cube turnaround. It looks very fancy. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, apparently like what you can well. do is set your, um, your virtual desktop to work because you can download various widgets that you know allow you to change virtual desktops, so you can have one that might be music, and then you have your email in another virtual desktop, yeah. and you can set this thing so that you bash the side of your computer, and it just kind of <laughs> it changes the desktop. I thought that was really kind of quite nifty. Aside from their technical troubles, I mean, how how was the gig? Did you enjoy it, Dave? Uh, yeah, it was blinding. It was it was a bit like being in somebody's. It was at um, Theatre Royal Drury Lane, which is a mega theatre in my opinion, and uh, it was a bit like being in somebody's kind of nice front room. And it had such a kind of, it was very polished, but he's very kind of self-effacing the whole way through. And he's like, oh, you know, this is a new song. Uh, we haven't really tried this before. Um, I don't know whether we're going to get through it. And uh, should, should we give it a go? And actually stopped a couple of songs twice. And he went, I've got an idea for the second verse. Let's try that. And of course, everybody just loved it because it kind of made the whole thing really intimate. Are you sure but he just so- hadn't figured out how to cover up the fact that the sequencer was stopping every time the keyboard scratched, <laughs> yeah. his, scratched his nose? <laughs> it's just distinctly possible. No, there didn't seem to be any um, technical screw-ups, but they can do no wrong, in my opinion. SonicState.com um, Procol Harum keyboard player sues for royalties after 40 years. Uh, Matthew Fisher was the original organ player, apparently, and he's um, suing Gary Brooker, who is the credited songwriter of A Whiter Shade of Pale, which is, I'm sure, a song most people are familiar with. Um, but after 40 years, he's decided, I'd like a piece of that, because it sold millions, and, and a lot of people say, you know, it defined the summer of love in 1967 and all of that. Um, 
what do we think about that as a president? I wonder if he, I don't know if he, he won. I think the court's still in session. But who's ever been in a band that hasn't split up because of publishing splits? It seems to me that every band in the world, that's why they split up. That's what you mean by musical differences. It means the singer's too rich and I'm not getting any of it. Yes, I suppose that could be could be true. I mean, the bloke who played sax on Baker Street didn't get credited with any songwriting, even though he made it up, you know, and that's one of those sort of classic kind of studio session musician got his 15 quid or whatever. I don't quite understand what this guy's suing for because it's a, it's a back tune anyway, isn't it? So apparently he's suing for a flourish that gets it back to the top so that they can play the whole thing all over again. So he's actually, apparently he's only suing for like a few seconds where he goes back up to the top so he can go dun, 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 whatever it does. You know, the, the whole, back, is it back fugue or something? Or well, That's probably six million quid because that, that song's probably made 30 million quid in publishing or something like in that. In 40 years. Yeah. It's quite a good chance of that, isn't there? Imagine how often that's been played on the radio, that thing. In the last week or so, yeah. say, for instance. Yeah. So uh, maybe he's realised um, that he's actually, his pension's not looking too hot. I'm sure that's what it is. Because a load, a load of musicians live off their back catalogue and it dwindles slowly and slowly and I think their minds turn to suing the singer when the records have finally stopped selling. Dave, you must have you know, done loads of sessions and come up with the... The mighty hook that you know sold sold the track or whatever. That's part yeah, of the deal, wasn't not it? Really. I mean, mine's sort of more of a techie standpoint, but um, I have been witness to a fair few rows over things sort of years later. But I mean, you work with some artists and you stand no chance of even getting a credit. I mean, you get your session fee and that's it. I think the the Rolling Stones are pretty infamous for that. It's just like right, no credits because if it wasn't for us, you wouldn't be in getting any work anyway. So tough. It's sort of an unwritten rule about being a techie, though, isn't it? Because as a techie, I've played loads of stuff on director and records, uh, MIDI guitar and keyboards, and I'm not credited for any of it. It's sort of assumed that because you're an engineer or a programmer or a producer even, that, that those people don't get credited yeah. for anything they've played. But getting a, a credit for playing is different to the writing credit. But that's what's happening. Some of the bigger, big remixers now are sort of going, yeah, I'll take on this mix, but I want you know a percentage of the publishing. That's fair enough, though, because probably their remix is going to take it somewhere where it wouldn't have gone anyway. So I think it's fair to give the, a remix or a percentage of the publishing. Well, it's me too, but really nobody else agrees. A different song, aren't they? <laughs> I didn't get it when I asked. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're in the high court, court number 56, if you're passing. So uh, it sounds like it's a barrel of laughs. And apparently um, the uh, uh, Matthew Fisher actually is being asked to play it in court so that the judge can kind of evaluate what he thinks and illustrate it from a musical point of view, no doubt. But, uh, Fantastic. Yeah, that, that'd be a laugh. There's obviously going to be... Do you think be... he's taken a real Hammond in there or a virtual one? I wonder. I wonder what he's got. Do you reckon it's a lap Native Instruments B3, B4 with, uh, with an M-Audio controller keyboard, perhaps? Or do you think they're wheeling one in? That would be hilarious, wouldn't it? This story is kind of is, is ongoing and uh, may well set a precedent. I mean, as these things do in law, I mean, you know, I refer you to the case of Procol Harum, Fisher versus Brooker. And I mean, if he, if he wins, then isn't this going to result in all sorts of horrible scenarios for... Every just... session player that ever played a guitar solo is going to want publishing. It's going to be mayhem. I think it's going to end up like those agreements they have in America about permission to have sex. It's, they're gonna, you know, when they say, I'm going to put my hand on your leg now, is that all right? And the person has to say yes. And it's the same. Sign here. I will play those notes, but you have to acknowledge that they were my idea. Oh, right, so you'll have a kind of, um, the, the musician will be sat there and he'll just whip out a form yeah. at key points in the session. Mm. 
Or maybe his lawyer will come. <laughs> it, it's, it seems complicated and kind of somewhat ludicrous. And one thinks maybe, uh, is there some sort of best of compilation coming out just before Christmas that might be featuring uh, a white shade of pale <laughs> that, that we're going to find out about anytime soon? Hmm, I wonder. <laughs> the one thing that I really enjoyed was the uh, Lassie uh, egg video, which I just thought was absolutely brilliant. I don't know if anyone knows. Uh, I know, Dave, you sent me that. Or was it? Don't know. Mark sent me that, but everybody sent I me think it. I and sent we, you the newest one. The newest one, which is called uh, Amateur. And it's a yeah. fantastic. I mean, what it is is basically him. Uh, he says that he can't play any instruments at all. And what he's done is he's edited himself, edited himself hitting the drum kit in various different, you know, cymbals, toms, snares, and just edited it into a drum beat. And, on, and also done the same with a piano where he's played all these notes and then edited a tune together. And uh, it's the result is fantastic. I mean, it's a he's a he's I would say a sort of brilliant video artist, but it's uh, it's really inventive. And when you look at it, it's just it's got it makes you smile. Made me smile. How do you think he did me, it though? He made me virtually cry. I was in like a fits of laughter because he remind the movement, the way he's edited it together, make, reminds me of John Cleese. So he's doing these kind of jerky, <laughs> mad movements, and then playing this amazing music. So how do I think he did it? I think there's a uh, there's a piece of shareware out in Japan that some guys put together that will uh, play. It's a drum machine that uses QuickTime video clips instead of um, wave files, and it all and you can put them together in sequences and patterns. So you can you could do that in that piece of software. But I don't know anyone else. Now, Pro Tools seven point two now lets you edit the video as well. Finally, so he could have done that. There, that he has got his own website. It's a sort of Nordic version of. MySpace. Uh, I'm afraid I can't give you any more details because my Nordic's not up to much. Um, and there's a sort of list of all the tunes, and I'm assuming they're his, but I can't tell. And they, you know, he says he can't play anything, but if you listen to the music that's listed on his site, it's pretty good and sounds rather smashing. And there, there's also in that list the audio from that videotape. But a great talent. I mean, if anyone wants to see uh, his stuff, we'll we'll put the link on the on the show show notes. He's had over a million hits on that amateur video. And it's, it's, oh, wow. it's, it started to generate that phenomena where people, what they do is they rip it off and post it as their own so they can get their profiles raised up in MySpace, in, in, uh, in YouTube, which is rather naughty. I think when I saw it, it had only had a few thousand. So that's, I mean, that was only a few days ago. Yeah, it was a half a million when I, when I saw it. Um, when was it you sent it to me? Thursday or Friday? So that wow. ain't bad. It must be, he's obviously getting honours and going up the charts. I wonder what, what do you do? If that happens to you, just goes mental like that. I mean, what do you think there are kind of Max Clifford's going to give you a ring or something, you know, or some kind of heavyweight PR agent and say, oh, I can make you a mint, son. I'm sure he'll end Definitely. up being a, a millionaire. Maybe the cameraman will sue him because he'll say that was my shot. <laughs> it was one of those lovely moments in the studio where the part just suddenly clicked and everyone was dancing around. Sonic stage. So you can hear there how the two parts don't conflict. There are a huge number of samples on that record. We double-tracked the drums, so there was a second drum track on there. The beginnings of affordable digital recording. SonicState.com. If what you're writing is just explaining some kind of, like, facet of the software, then it's like the piece of music that's been written is more explaining the machine than it is, like, your personality. Boing. 
that was a trailer for our Going Solo podcast. Um, that goes out every other Monday. Next Monday is the next one. Um, this coming Monday, in fact. And uh, we'll be talking to Mick Glossop, um, a real old school producer engineer who worked with uh, Frank Zappa, all sorts of people. He's got a lot of interesting stories. So we hope you enjoy that one. Isn't kids' music rubbish, though? I mean, I spend I spend a lot of time listening. Daddy, I want the little songs on. You know, everywhere I go, and uh, it just struck me that there are lots and lots of there must be lots of people out there who are making music for kids. I mean, because you get those tapes of sort of out of copyright nursery rhymes and various different arrangements, and some of them are just I just I, I really find it offensive some of them because they've obviously just turned the Bon Tempe organ on or the the equivalent of these days and just kind of had someone sing over it, or or more importantly, what they often do is just get a load of kids sing tunelessly over it. And that's it. And then release it and you can buy it with your mop at Sainsbury's or, you know, Walmart or whatever. So I wondered if anybody had actually had anything to do with making any children's music and what the pitfalls were. Uh, you have to play everything in major keys. That's usually the biggest pitfall in my opinion. <laughs> Why? Why do you have to do that? Because it's all so, it all has to be so bloody happy. <laughs> I mean, I think kids' music always is in major keys. And... But I don't know why. I don't know why it needs to be. <clears throat> no, we need some sad, melancholic kids, really, don't we? <laughs> oh, I think there's plenty <laughs> of those. Well, there's certainly sad ones. There. Sad, <laughs> fat, melancholic kids. Have you heard that new Jarvis oh, track? Fat Children. <laughs> no. Brilliant. No. Absolutely brilliant. It's a, it's a, the song's called Fat Children, and it's about. Um, it's basically a story about this bloke who gets, um, who gets knifed for, uh, for these fat kids sort of mug him and nick his mobile phone. And they kill him, you know, and it's his story. And it's called Fat Children. It's a great song. It's a great album, actually. Really good album. Uh, I digress. I've got some quite good kids' music. I mean, all sorts of different kids' music. And I, I, it is all in major keys. I have noticed this. And some of it is based on songs that people already know. Um, one of the tapes I've got is something that's called Relax Kids, Amazing Meditations for Wizards. And that's like new age music with some woman talking over the top of it and encouraging your child to do creative visualisation and all that sort of stuff. Now, that's really cool, so I can recommend that. Sounds quite hippie. Uh, the other thing that we do with our toddler is we take him to sing and sign classes. Time to sing and time to sign. And um, this is where we all go along and learn baby signing, us and him. And uh, the adults sing loads of silly songs, which are all sort of childish melodies with different words that, that teach you how to do the signing and okay. it's brilliant absolutely brilliant because i've always wanted to learn how to do bsl british sign language so that i could communicate with um deaf people if i needed to and now i can the baby signing is loosely based on it so i can also communicate with the baby he's 18 months old and can communicate back and um, we'll be talking. And the, soon, songs are easy, the songs are easy to learn because I know them all already. They're songs you, like Frere Jacques, all right, okay. different words. So do you do you think that um, um, he'll have a greater vocabulary as a result of that? So when he actually does start talking, he'll be straight onto three and four syllable words. He is. He already is. Wow. I mean, he's he's doing descriptive stuff. He's got a good understanding of what is his and what is somebody else's. He'll be describing things now, and he's not. He, you know, they're not supposed to start doing that till they're about two years old. But in conjunction with the signs, he's my daughter was a genius as well. Describing stuff. <laughs> Richard, I think your daughter, your son's a genius also, isn't he? Uh, and, and Dave, yours is your daughter's a genius as well, I believe. Completely, yes. Has anybody here tried recording do, uh, with their child yet, singing a song and doing a backing track for it? 
you obviously speak from experience here. <laughs> well, my son wanted to sing Living La, La Vida Loca, because I think it was on the end of Shrek 2 or something like that. And uh, and so I dutifully downloaded a MIDI file off the internet and got him to sing over it. And about 20 minutes later, he rushed downstairs in floods of tears, saying it, saying it was the worst thing he'd ever done and he wanted to commit suicide, <laughs> which, was, which is a ringing endorsement of my production abilities, I thought. <laughs> Auto-tune, perhaps? Well, Melodyne worked very hard for me that night. <laughs> Did it make it all right? It did make actually made it all right, and because it, it was one of those, it was a terrible thing because there was my young, he's what six at the time or something like that, and it was like it, mental torture for the poor kid. I thought he was going to be scarred and never sing again for the rest of his life, and <laughs> thankfully, Melodyne has brought his sanity back to me, saved me a lot in uh, doctor's bills in the future. Excellent, Claudia and Brandon, who sang on the song that I wrote for them, both blame the other one for being out of tune. My name is. I'm not a big boat or a pirate ship. I'm a little canal boat. I'm so when when uh, when they hear it and they go, oh no, that's Claudia who's not singing. You know, Brandon will say, no, that's Claudia who's not singing in key, and and Brandon or the, you know vice versa. They'll say it the other way around as well. So you well, need two I, children. I, I, to work I refer you back to a couple of podcasts ago, there, uh, Mark, where you said it was down to the engineer to say, "No, that's not good enough. You need to do another take rather than <laughs> patch it up." So I'm, I'm disappointed in your production skills. You should have cracked the whip and, you know, not given them any ice cream until they got it right. I'll tell you what, Nick. We can take the mick out of kids' music, but um, I knew um, Jonathan Cohen years ago who did play away and play school and the all pianist. that, and his PRS every year was like six figures. I can believe that. So don't knock it. <laughs> I, I remember reading this interview with Chris Martin, um, who was saying he felt on top of the world because he was sold out two nights at uh, the Madison Square Gardens, and then he saw that for the next six days, somebody called the Mumbles or something like that, for, who did kids' music, had sold out two, two uh, shows a day for the next six days in Madison Square Garden. My God. I came out with a phrase with to my daughter the other day, and uh, it just this is like a hundred years later after this advert was released, but it went lip smacking, thirst quenching, ace tasting, motivating, good buzzing, cool talking, high walking, fast living, ever giving, cool fizzing. Cresta. <laughs> was it Pepsi? Not Cresta. It was so Cresta. Was, it was it's frothy man? No, it was oh. Pepsi. Oh, Cresta. Yeah. <laughs> I think the only problem with this conversation is most of our <laughs> listeners are going to be American and this is going to mean absolutely nothing to them. Much as I'd like to go down um, memory lane, right. So we, did any of us um, play our kids' music in the womb, as it were? Yes. I did bark. I didn't do Mozart, but I did the bark thing. And I, and and, uh, and he's, he's all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did quite a lot of Miles Davis and Stevie Wonder, and my nipper's got absolutely no interest in music at all. Oh, uh, no. really? <laughs> yeah, completely indifferent to it. I've been trying to get her to take up piano, and she's just like, no, no, no. My daughter really loves Madonna. She dances around to the last Madonna album, and um, she really likes golf rap, actually, because when, we, when she was, I think Jane was probably about eight months pregnant, we went to a, a really big outdoor gig, and uh, we went right up the front, and the... And uh, previous to to, um, to us going up the front, they hadn't. They'd just been playing some DJ music, and it wasn't kind of really driving the system. And then um, I think it was uh, Strict Machine or something came on, and it just you know that trouser flapping bass that you get. And Jane started to get really worried, and because you know she it was vibrating all the all the juices in her tummy, you know. And she then Nell started kicking and kind of 
you know, I, I think she she um, was indoctrinated at an early age to enjoy that. So she does like all sorts of music, but pop music, she's a big fan of that. Andy Jones was going to join us this week because he, he felt he couldn't resist because Andy Jones is a major Depeche Mode fan and he's had to duck out of the podcast recently because he's got lots of family commitments, but he's almost, he was very tempted to come and join us again. And um, I, it struck me, I was watching TV the other day and it was something that was t- they were targeting, you know, kind of best ofs, top 20, you know, best ofs, greatest hits sort of albums. And the Depeche Mode best of came came on and I thought, oh, now there's a band who've gone through all sorts of transmogrifications, isn't it? I mean, when they first started out being that sort of squeaky clean uh, kind of pop combo um, and um, and look at them now, recovering druggies, bondage gear, all sorts of dark and dark moments and turn went all industrial. I mean, does... I'm, I was a big fan. The, the first single, I think it was Just Can't Get Enough, that was the reason I got into synths. Because wow. I just thought that was oh, okay. such a cool record. And I remember it because I was on a, some adventure holiday when I was a teenager and I heard that and we were all kind of acting cool in the in the youth club centre playing table tennis and what have you. And that came on and it just it did something for me that I've not experienced quite so much since. But then I kind of, they went off my radar a bit and the next time they popped up, it was that album Songs of Faith of Devotion, which I think is a work of genius. In fact, Richard, I think, introduced me to that particular album. I just think, I was produced by Flood, wasn't it? Um, who was a hot producer at well, the that time. That can only be a good thing. He's brilliant, Flood. Dave Garn's vocal performances are just very emotional. And wasn't it my, uh, Spike Stent was doing? It was one of his first big mixing jobs, was it? I think, be, uh, before he got big. And uh, I just remember those records just sounding like nothing else ever. It was, the, it was before everybody had started distorting everything. And it just made it sound like... It was huge music. It made it sound like everything, every piece of equipment was breaking with the enormity of it all. Are there any kind of standout tracks for uh, um, for you, Dave? I mean, is there anything particular that floats your boat Clean. about Depeche Mode? Clean. I mean, I actually, I really, I disliked them with a vengeance when they first came out. I hated all that kind of, most of the synth pop. I think the other, the only, Yazoo pulled it off, obviously Vince again. Uh, for me, Tears for Fears were really about the only band who pulled it off with their first album. And I was, you know, obviously completely obsessed with synths. But uh, when I got Violator, that just changed everything. And that track Clean at the end is just awesome and still stands up. I think that album's amazing today. If I use the imposter, I can tell you that much. Do they um, use any of the patches you rip? Maybe you could actually, um, you could actually sue them for royalties. <laughs> so, Mark, Depeche Mode not, not did, didn't do it for you. Chord structure's just not, um, not happening. I'm, I'm- they do. I mean, they but, but because all the songs have got the same chords, there's just like the odd one that that sort of stands out, isn't there? So, I mean, personal Jesus being one of them. Well, I, I can tell you the the best of the the Depeche Mode, the best Depeche Mode, the best of uh, is out now, pop pickers, and you can get it in time for Christmas. I think uh, the track listing is personal Jesus. Just can't get enough. Everything counts. Enjoy the silence. Shake the disease. See you, it's no good, strange gloves, suffer well, dream on, people are people, martyr, walking in my shoes, one of my favourites. I feel you, another one of my favourites off uh, Songs of Faith and Devotion. Precious, master and servant, new life, never let me down again. 18 corkers, I think. This is definitely being my top five most important keyboards of all time. Single most influential keyboard ever designed, obviously after the piano. Great for bass lines and leads and that sort of thing. It's, it's a pretty cool synth. The top 20 greatest synths of all time. 
coming soon from Sonic State. Okay, that was a that was a trail for our com- upcoming top twenty synths. Uh, we're doing a sort of TV series of uh, the the top twenty synths. Um, keep an eye on the site for that. Uh, I hope you'll enjoy it. It's shaping up to be really interesting. We're getting some great interviews and all sorts of footage that will make it great fun. So Mark brought us a brought us a piece which was uh, based around sound, soundhack.com, which is uh, has always been a kind of well, it was, was it OS nine? It started out on Mac OS nine, yeah. uh, and it was a kind of sound munging thing it was always a bit kind of command line and quite difficult to 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 work out if you were you know maybe not um very good at these things which i wasn't so i always i never really kind of got into it but you you say he's now released that his his uh this program has plugins what do they do i used soundhack for a long time and uh you had to really think about how you were going to use it you couldn't really tell how anything was going to work out because you had to render the file and then listen to it after it had rendered on a, on a slow computer. Um, you, you know, it took a long time to figure stuff out. So now he's brought out the program, which is essentially a whole load of um, fast Fourier transform filters. One thing that I really want to say is utterly brilliant is that he's got a binaural filter, which you can place things in pseudo surround sound. Um, but you can switch an LFO onto this binaural filter and make it spin things around your head, and it's really quite good. It's the best auto panner I've come across yet. The other stuff is uh, spectral filters, which helps you to remove sounds from audio which shouldn't be there, so you can teach the filter the sound of someone playing the guitar, and then you can put drums and guitar through it, and it will remove the guitar, and it does that quite effectively, believe it or not. And the other one is a spectral compander compressor expander so you can make sounds some sounds in the spectrum louder or quieter and again you can teach the filter one sound and have it add it more of it or take more of it away from another sound so i mean if anyone wants to find out what it does go and download SoundHack because it's free i think that's what well, i'm trying to say sounds far too complicated for me so but suffice to say that tom herb is uh, a, a major boffin and has ported his stuff into plug-in formats for osx so we can all do it in real time rather than just Render them offline. The Yamaha GX1 that was on eBay. Dave, you sent me that, didn't you? Yeah, I wanted some money to see if we could. Yeah, uh, Dave wanted to know if we could club together and buy it. And I think it was currently what was it at? It was about a hundred thousand dollars, wasn't it? It was eighty thousand dollars. I think. I think it was by now at one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. Who was it? Do we know? It was in Australia, which made it even funnier. So you could probably spend, what, but it'd be $125,000 buy it now price and probably another $25,000 to ship it. Has anybody actually played one or seen one? Yes, me. Yay. And is it just like a big CS80? It's unbelievable. I mean, it, it's just the most staggering instrument I think I've ever seen. It just, and it weighs, and it literally does weigh a ton. But it sounds, I mean, it, you know, it's got those huge speakers. Funnily enough, my um, partner, Chris, used to be um, Keith Emerson's tech. And I think he had to lug Keith's GX1 around a couple of times and hated it with a vengeance, obviously. And uh, when we finally uh, got to play one here in the UK a few weeks ago, he was just like, oh, God, you know, I can hardly contain my indifference. And then we heard it, and it was just magnificent. I mean, it is, it's, I mean, it was the forerunner to the CS80. Um, but it way, way, way more complicated. Has it got program. FM synthesis in there as well? Uh, no. It's just an, a, a massive analogue synth. I mean, it looks a bit like an organ, doesn't it? Yeah, that's what it is. An organ it with is. a synth built in. 
that it's the biggest, most serious organ you could ever wish for. <laughs> sorry, I couldn't help but laugh at that point. I know it's terribly immature of me, but I, but yes, you played. Sorry, you were saying you played Gordon Re- Gordon Reed, uh, and he bought his in the he bought his in um, Australia and shipped it over to the UK. I mean, wow. The, the, I think it's in uh, one of the Sound on Sound articles. I so, the, do we know how many were made? I think it's about 30. No way. Is that all? Mm. Oh, how, mm. how were the 30 musicians that could afford, what was it? How much was it then? It was. It was, must have been $100,000 back then or something, wasn't I it? I could certainly Silly. see it being about 50 grand, yeah. So it's actually increased in value, which is sort of quite remarkable. Is, is it temperamental? I mean, does one need to have a, a kind of yes. backroom staff? yes. Yes, I, he told me how many circuit boards there were in it, and it was just like we fell about laughing for half an hour because it was like, right, okay. So the chances of us getting through this session with it are uh, between zero and one, probably. It was quite entertaining. But I think there's two in the UK. He's got one and um, Aphex Twin. I can't I can't see that fitting in with the Aphex Twin's window-licking style, really. Because for me, Songs in the Key at Life was a seminal GX album. So all those kind of string quartet sounds on Songs in the Key of Life, that was a GX1, was it? Yeah, Village Ghetto Land was the GX. Ah. So that track, Living Against a Paradise, the strings in that, which are sampled of of, of the uh, Stevie Wonder record, are in fact G- GS1 strings, GX1 strings. Yeah. Are yeah. they? Yeah. So it doesn't look like it should make that sort of noise. I mean, I've never heard one, and I've, I've probably never seen one, but it, it looks like... When I um, when I was about fifteen, a friend of mine, his father was really into playing the organ, and he had this enormous great thing in his house, and probably not anywhere near as big as that. But I, it just looked like, you know, the, the, the old chap with his pipe popped on the drum machine and popped away and played some some sheet music he'd got in front of him, and it looks to me like one of those kind of things. But obviously, I'm clearly wrong. It's a bit more futuristic because I mean, the one that certainly the one on eBay is. Uh is a kind of white plastic curvy thing and looks kind of very sort of 70s retro kind of styly. So it's a very desirable item. And sadly, one that none of us are likely to be getting for Christmas. <laughs> Damn. I think we're, we're done. So I think we should call it a day. And I just want to say thanks very much to everybody for coming. Uh, thanks very much, Richard Evans. It's been a pleasure. And Dave Spears, thanks to you also for joining us once again. Thank you. And also Mark Tindley, thanks for you. You're welcome. I, I was going to suggest you use the last one from last week, but that one's actually come out okay, hasn't it? Yeah, no, that one's fine. Well done. Anyway, uh, that's a wrap for this week, so thanks very much to everybody for participating. And remember, if you want to call us, we've got a Skype number for people to ring up and leave an answer phone message. And if you haven't got Skype, there's no excuse, because we've also got a US telephone number, which is 312-376-8089. And if you're outside the US, 001-312-376-8089. But if Europe's closer to hand, uh, we've got a UK number, and that's 0207-870-8616. And if you're outside the UK and it's closer to you, that's plus four four. 207-870-8616 you can also email us at sonictalk at sonicstake.com and our Skype handle is sonictalk ok thanks for listening sonicstake.com sonic